Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. Apologetics Part 12, New Testament Trustworthiness. For the New Testament, we can employ several of the same lines of reasoning as the Old Testament, though there are a couple more to consider like internal evidence and messianic prophecies that help bolster the case. Furthermore, many people's lives have been changed by reading and believing the words of the New Testament, me included. No other book has such a legacy for radical life transformation. If you would like to take this class for credit, please contact the Atlanta Bible College so you can register and do the necessary work for a grade. Here now is part 12 of the apologetics class, New Testament Trustworthiness. All right, this is lecture number 12, New Testament Trustworthiness. It's going to be a little shorter lecture, but it has more points. It has eight points, but these are points that you're probably used to seeing because we already did this for Old Testament trustworthiness, and there are only so many strategies for developing trustworthiness, right? Some of them are a little different. Some of them are weaker than others. Some of them are stronger. But we have archaeology, unflattering honesty, changed lives, preservation, internal evidence, messianic prophecies, Jesus predicts the future, and martyrdom. Okay, for archaeology, let's flip over to page 145 in Zimaista book. Oh, we get to talk about ossuaries. Sweet. I told you about the James ossuary, right? Like so anyhow, there's this other ossuary called Johann Johannen. <laughs> page 145, I think, I don't know how to say his first name. Jan Johannen. This is really cool. It's this guy they found with part of a crucifixion stake embedded in his foot. That's pretty gross, but anyhow. Whose turn are we on, Jacob? Ossuaries, stone burial boxes have been uncovered that support the events described in the New Testament. One example involves the discovery of a man named Johann Johannen. I have a friend named John Johnson, so like this thing happens from time to time. <laughs> He had been crucified in a way similar to the descriptions of crucifixion in the New Testament. Nails had been driven through his lower forearms, and there was even a large iron nail that had been driven through both heels and is still lodged into one of them. Also, both his shin bones had been broken. Contrary to some critics who maintain that crucified victims were not buried but were tossed in common graves and eaten by wild animals, this is a clear case of a very crucified criminal. A second case involves the discovery of a Yosef bar Kayafa, Joseph son of Caiaphas. Experts are virtually certain that the Caiaphas referred to here as the high priest of Jerusalem. The same one that hated Jesus. They found his tomb. They found his coffin. That's crazy. Wait, they found Caiaphas? Yeah, Caiaphas is, they found his ossuary. Wow. Do you realize how huge that is? The one who handed Jesus over to Pontius Pilate. A third example is the James ossuary recently discovered near Jerusalem. An inscription on the ossuary reads, James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. 
According to scholar Ben Witherington, if it seems probable the ossuary found in the vicinity of Jerusalem is dated to about AD 63, is indeed the burial box of James, the brother of Jesus. This inscription is the most important extra-biblical evidence of its kind. Right. So that's just three ossuaries. The James, brother of Jesus ossuary, the Joseph, son of Caiaphas ossuary. The other one was the Johann, Johannan crucified guy, which shows that crucifixion was something that was practiced. And we date ossuaries typically to the first century because that's when limestone was plenteous because of the renovations on the temple. So it's kind of a neat, and then also there was a lot of political uprising because of the war in 66. All right, Josiah, give us some Israelite cities. All right. <clears throat> Israelite cities and other specific sites have been unearthed that confirm New Testament references to them. For example, it is believed that the city of Capernaum is located at Telhom, the pool of Bethesda, has been discovered just north of the Temple Mount. An inscription of a letter from Emperor Claudius was discovered at Delphi that reads, Lucius Junius Gallio, my friend, and the proconsul of Achaia. The significance of Galileo is that he is the one that ruled a case against Paul in Acts 8.12. So, I mean, there's a serious interlocking of archaeology and the text of Acts. And it's also the, the main key that scholars use to reconstruct the chronology of Paul, because they know when Galileo or Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, and then they can date Paul when he was in this city, when he ran into this proconsul, and basically the proconsul dismissed the whole thing. And that's when they grabbed like Sosthenes randomly and just beat the tar out of him. Then the next thing you have the Gnostic Gospels, which I think is kind of a weak point, so we're not really going to go there. I want to show you the Pilot Stone. Check it out. This is what the pile of stones actually like, right over here, it's only a few letters. This is a reconstruction of what the whole thing would have said if the whole thing pr was preserved perfectly. Okay, and what it reads is Caesarian as Tiberium, Pontius Pilatus, Prefectus Judea, did it dedicabit, which translates for the Caesareans. The Tiberium, which Pontius Pilate, the prefect of Judea, gave and dedicated. So, did it is gave and dedicavit is dedicated, right? Tiberium is a temple dedicated to, the, to Tiberius Caesar. Okay. This inscription found in Caesarea confirms Pontius Pilate's historical existence. It describes him as prefect of Judea. This is significant because people, critics and skeptics, have said, there's no such thing as Pontius Pilate. And then they found the stone with his name on it. And where was the stone Caesarea. Caesarea. Yeah. Caesarea Maritima, I would say. The one that's on the Mediterranean. You've probably been there. There you go. All right, so that's a, a little bit about the archaeology of the New Testament. I think we also had a couple other things in here. Coins. The Bible doesn't make a big deal of it, but there's like, hey, there's a shekel tax or a half shekel tax. and you know, should we pay it or not? There's no mention of the significance of that coin. 
You know what I mean? It's just part of their society. It's sort of like an accidental detail, but it corroborates with the archaeological evidence that we find and people dig up. There's a silver denarius. And this is like the, the widow's mite. You remember that story that Jesus is sit sitting there and he sees this widow throw in this little tiny penny or whatever and he says, you know, she's put in more than all the rest, right? Well, th that's a real coin and they have those coins. You know, they found them. We actually have one in our church, framed. Yeah, it's not worth much, even today, because <laughs> there are like just tons of them. <laughs> okay, so that's a bit about archaeology. On to unflattering honesty. I mean, come on. Peter's denials, classic example of what you would not want to have your hero do, especially if Peter, the one who's behind the first gospel, Mark, why would he include this stuff about himself, about these denials, if it didn't actually happen? It doesn't appear that he's looking to establish himself as this incredibly credible person. You know what I mean? He's just trying to tell the story truly as it was. Paul's persecution of the church, you think that was an awkward fact? Lots of other examples of unflattering honesty within the New Testament. Reason number three is changed lives. We could have put that for the Old Testament too, but I, I feel like there are just so many people that have read the Gospels, that have encountered Jesus through Luke or through Matthew or through John or Mark, and it has just changed their life from the inside out. There are people who have believed in the New Testament in particular and have escaped heroin addiction, have escaped all kinds of other addiction, or even murderers who repent and change their ways because of reading the scriptures. You, you know the famous story of uh, John Newton? What song did he write? Amazing Grace? You never heard of this guy, John Newton? He was a slave trader. He became a Christian and changed his ways and he wrote the Amazing Grace song. Lots of stories like that. William Wilberforce would be another one for the British folks in the room. All right, number four, preservation. I don't really have time to go into great detail about this, but there once upon a time was a Roman emperor named Diocletian. And Diocletian persecuted the Christians from the year 303 to 313. It was a 10-year persecution. In church history, we call it the Great Persecution. 303 to 313. During that time, he outlawed the New Testament. He outlawed, actually, the whole Christian Bible. And he systematically went through the Roman Empire with the full power of the Roman government behind him. He's the, he's the emperor. And he burned scripture. And he eliminated scripture. And that's why we don't have too many manuscripts before the 300s, because Diocletian was really good at capturing scripture, capturing Christians, torturing them, taking their scripture away and burning it. So 303 to 313, that's a three is the great persecution. 25 years later, after Diocletian had erected a column on the burnt ashes of what he believed was the last Christian Bible, Constantine, the new emperor, commissioned the production of 50 more Bibles, one of which we have to this day, well, two of which, I think one is Sinaiticus and one is Vaticanus, probably came from Constantine's uh, commissioning of these Bibles. There's a famous atheist named Voltaire who forecast within a century there would be no Bibles left on earth. Ironically, 50 years after he died, the Geneva Bible Society used his old printing press and house to produce stacks of Bibles. The Bible is today available in far 
more languages than any other book. Do you know how many languages the Bible is available in, in the year 2015? It's 531 languages. 531 languages. I, I will show it to you in Wikipedia because we all know Wikipedia never lies. Number one, the Bible. Languages, 2,883, at least one book, 1,329 languages, just the New Testament, 531 languages, Old and New Testaments. Number two are those Jehovah's Witnesses. God bless them. Look at that. They have uh, 583 of this book, whatever it is, and then uh, 483 of this other one. And then number three is the United Nations Commission on Human Rights, which uh, only has 462. But it's, it's, you know, it's amazing in the world we live in, the sophisticated age, you know, the Bible's first, the Jehovah's Witnesses are second, and then comes the United Nations, who are like trying to get things in as many languages as possible. I mean, this is the Declaration of Human Rights, and it's still losing to the Bible. What does that tell you about the Bible? What, what is the deal with the Bible? That even in the 21st century, it still outstrips all other known books on planet Earth easily. Wycliffe translators, yeah, yep, yep, excellent, excellent point, thank you. There's just something weird about the preservation of the scriptures that we have 24,000 manuscripts of the New Testament. It's just something weird about that. Something weird about the fact that it's the most published book. It's not really proof that the Bible is true, but if, the, if there was a God behind the Bible, you would kind of expect it to be the way it is. You know what I mean? So I think I would argue with it in that direction. Same thing with changed lives. I mean, some people can read Dostoevsky and come away with a changed life or whatever. Tolstoy, in later life, became a radical Christ follower, by the way. Internal evidence. Let's take a look at Acts. No, Luke. Let's take a look at Luke. All right, whose turn is it? And as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who, from the beginning, were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, had lived with us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all of you closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that have All right, what does Luke say he's doing? He's making up an account for some eyewitnesses. Yeah, he's, he's coming up with an account of what happened based on eyewitnesses, right? That's a key phrase. He's trying to put it in consecutive order. Do you know what that means, consecutive order? Yeah, the order of the actual events as opposed to ordering things by category, like all the miracles in the same chapter uh, or something like that. And he wants Theophilus to know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Luke is crazy concerned about accuracy. He's really focused on it. 
And this is what I mean by internal evidence. An example would be in Luke, uh, also Acts. But Luke, <clears throat> Luke is not the kind of book that's written to make you feel good. Luke is not the kind of book that is written to make you buy something from him. According to Luke, what Luke thinks Luke is doing is getting the exact truth from eyewitnesses and putting it in consecutive order so that Theophilus, the guy who's paying for this, will know the truth about the things that he's been taught. That's what Luke says Luke is doing. Is Theophilus just like a benefactor? Yeah, benefactor. Yep, that's exactly what he is. Acts is also dedicated or addressed to Theophilus. And we don't know anything about Theophilus, so sorry about that. Let me just give you an example of this. So right when he starts, what does he say? In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. That's crazy detailed, right? He could have just said Zach and Liz were out back and they were talking. You know, but he, he starts with dating it by Herod, who was and then saying his title, and then talking about Zechariah, and then giving the specific division of his priesthood. Right? And then you look at um, chapter 3. Look at this. Look at, look at how careful Luke is. Now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, they didn't have like 2015 or 2014. They didn't have years like we have that everyone agrees on. So the way you date things is based on who's in charge and what year they're in. Okay? So, and he wants to be thorough. Now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Licinius was tetrarch of Abilene. In the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias. Come on, he's a historian doing good history. He had to track down all those details so that he could pinpoint it when it happened, right? And so that's what I mean by internal evidence. Uh, especially for Luke, but also 2 Peter 1, 16 says, this is Peter, we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he, we receive honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. So Peter is claiming to be an eyewitness. And then once again, one last scripture, 1 Corinthians 15, 6. After, so this is Paul's credo, right? And he's, he's just listing off all the resurrection appearances. He's like, I delivered to you what was delivered to me, that Christ died. This is the William Lane Craig stuff, right? Christ died for our sins according to the scripture and that he was raised from the dead. He was buried and he was raised from the dead the third day according to the scriptures, that, and that he appeared to Cephas then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than five hundred brethren at once, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Tim Keller's point on this scripture is that he's writing this to the Corinthians, which is a group of Christians that are doubting resurrection. That's what chapter 15 is all about, is proving that there actually is resurrection yet to come on the basis of the fact that Jesus was raised. And so, uh, Tim Keller's point on this is like, it's almost as if he's saying, look, go talk to them. There's 500 of them. They're still alive. You know, it's almost like a dare. To us, it's no dare because we're so many centuries later. But if you're reading this, you know, and he's like, there's 500 people, guys. This is not some small thing here. It bespeaks a certain level of confidence that it's historically verifiable. 
onto messianic prophecies. Meister's good on this. Maybe he's too good. <laughs> 148 is the page I want. 148 is where Meister lists all of the prophecies from the Old Testament fulfilled in Jesus. The various prophecies about being the Messiah, about different things related to his ministry on earth, and his, especially his crucifixion. Like, for example, Psalm 22. If you read Psalm 22 sometime, you're going to be like, whoa, this is talking about Jesus' crucifixion, but yet it was written hundreds of years beforehand. It's like, wow. Or, and here's, here's the crazy thing about Jesus' crucifixion. He had no control over anything at all. I'm talking about the part where they actually crucify him. He's a passive participant. Even if he tried to take control, what would the Romans do? They would just beat him and force him to do what they wanted him to do. He's not like, hey guys, this is the part where you gamble for my clothes. <laughs> you know what I mean? And yet, that's a prophecy. Right? Hey guys, make sure that you, that you beat me so severely before you crucify me that I die before you get to the leg breaking part because prophecy says I'm not supposed to have any broken bones. <laughs> you know what I mean? So these are things that are way out of Jesus. He's, he can't intentionally fulfill these things. These are things that either have to happen uh, or not. And those are messianic prophecies, which, which increases our confidence in the trustworthiness of the New Testament itself, considering how well it interlocks in with the Old Testament and the prophecies that the Old Testament has. And then the uh, next point is that um, Jesus predicts the future. I've got a couple examples on this. These are kind of internal, a few of them, but one of them is that his disciples would betray him. Uh, another is that his disciples would desert him. Another is that Peter would deny him. Those are harder to establish because they all were fulfilled so quickly that they all happened before Matthew was written, who records it, or Mark or Luke, right? So we don't know if they weren't made up, right? However, this next one, there are two more significant ones. One is that he prophesied the coming destruction of Jerusalem, right? Which there's no way he could have known that was going to happen. And the other is he prophesied that his followers would be severely persecuted. And they were. And that's a matter of church history. So, and then his biggest prophecy by far was that he would be captured and beaten and killed and rise from the dead on the third day. So the biggest prophecy of Jesus is his own resurrection. I have so many scriptures on that. But he also prophesied the destruction of the temple, which, you know, the temple is this huge, massive building with all these people that support it. Like, who would ever imagine it would get destroyed? And actually, it was destroyed. So that's definitely noteworthy. And then uh, number eight, followers of Jesus believed it was true and died for it. And I want to linger here for a minute or two. Well, actually, let me show you that. Let me show you that persecution prophecy. This is Jesus in the Olivet Discourse towards the end of his life. He says, Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you and you will be hated by all nations because of my name, right? This is before the Great Tribulation and all that stuff really gets cooking. You know, these are the beginning of sorrows kind of stuff. This is exactly what ended up happening to the followers of Jesus. I mean, being a follower of Jesus did not win friends and influence people. It did not gain you power or prestige or money. 
basically, did anybody see that uh, TV show AD? Yeah. That was good, right? It wasn't bad, it's It shocked me how not cheesy it was. I was, because I hate Bible videos. Uh, they're always so B-rate, you know, but this one was phenomenal. I mean, I thought it was really well done. So, some parts are whack. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. You know how they portray Peter yes. and the apostles and how they were... You, you just got a sense of the, the, the terror of being a Jesus follower in those early years. I mean, it's not something that you're going to do if you're making it up. If you're actually going to follow through with it... You, you, keep it in mind for a second. The people who killed Jesus did not disappear once Jesus was raised from the dead and then left them. They're still there. They're still in power. They still want to kill people that proclaim in Jesus' name the resurrection of the dead. That's what we read in Acts, right? They're still there. So, look, if you're going to follow Jesus, it's not going to be like, well, I think I, I, think I had a dream about him. No, it's not going to be, I think I had a dream about him. It's, I'm sure that he's alive and that he, that I, that I ate with him, is what they said, and that you know, he ascended into heaven, but that he's coming back and that I have a mission and there's no time to waste and I need to get out there and preach. And die, they did. Right? And arrested, I feel like Yoda now, and arrested they were. <laughs> to the store I would go. I always joke about that um, translation, before Abraham was I am. It's just Yoda talk, you know, they just didn't rearrange it correctly. Anyhow, they wanted to dangle that I am off the end to make it sound like uh, Exodus 3. Well, sadly, this is where the recording ended, and I ended up showing a video to the class, which I can't include here because it's copyrighted, but go check it out yourselves, the series AD, where it really does well in portraying the disciples and what it was like right after the crucifixion of Jesus and after the ascension, how the authorities were constantly cracking down on them and persecuting them, and what kind of courage it must have taken and confidence that Jesus really was raised from the dead and that they did believe the message that they were sharing with people. So in light of that, I just wanted to add in a couple of more details. What I covered here with you was eight reasons to believe in the New Testament. And yes, that took less than 20 minutes because a lot of this really ties in with what we've seen as far as the Old Testament. So we've looked at archaeology, we've looked at unflattering honesty, changed lives, preservation, internal evidence, messianic prophecies, and I encourage you to read those on your own, Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 in particular, as well as reason number seven, Jesus predicts the future, and then last of all, martyrdom. But in looking at the book, In Defense of the Bible, edited by Cohen and Wilder, I came across some more archaeological evidence that I thought, since this episode is a little bit short anyhow, I could add on here at the end. This comes from that book, In Defense of the Bible, page 236. And what we see here is that in 1871, they discovered a warning against Gentiles coming into the temple area where only Jews are allowed to go. This was a warning to Gentiles that if they crossed this balustrade, this partial wall, 
that they would be executed on site for going into a holy area. Then another archaeological find from the 1800s is an inscription from Thessalonica that had the words, in the time of the Politarchs. And why this is significant is that it confirms that in Acts 17, 6, the statement where they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, the Greek word for city authorities there is Politarchs. And so this is a word that was used to refer to local authorities in the region. A third archaeological discovery, in addition to the ones I already mentioned earlier, is another ossuary. I had mentioned three ossuaries, the ossuary of Yehohanan, who had part of a crucifixion stake in his in his foot. I also mentioned James, the brother of Jesus, and Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, here is a fourth ossuary that was discovered in the year 1941 in the Kidron area, and it bore the name Alexander the Cyrene, son of Simon. And there's just a lot going on there. You have Alexander, probably a, a pretty common name, not really a Jewish name. This is definitely a Greek name, but the region, Cyrene, now that's not all that common, and then Simon. So you have kind of an interesting combination of terms here. You have Alexander, Cyrene, and Simon. And this is too much of a coincidence that Mark fifteen twenty one says that this was actually the person that the Romans compelled to carry the cross, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander. And so this Alexander is the one <laughs> that they have found his bone box or his ossuary. Really remarkable. Then in 1956, there was another ossuary found that confirmed a saying of Jesus. Jesus had talked about Corbin. I don't know if you remember this or not, but he says in Mark chapter 7, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained for me is Corbin that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition. Well, in 1956, they found this ossuary inscribed with the words, quote, everything that a man will find to his prophet in this ossuary is an offering to God from the one within it. And it's actually this Aramaic word, Corbin. And so this is uh, an interesting practice of dedicating to God certain possessions then the person doesn't spend them on himself or his parents either. And so this just confirms the words of Jesus here. Next, we have in 1964, the archaeologists in Jerusalem in the vicinity of St. Anne's Church were able to uncover a pool complex through a series of digs. Many had believed that the Pool of Bethesda, mentioned in John chapter 5, was fictitious, made up by John who wrote that gospel. However, when they finally did uncover it, it confirmed what the Bible had said. Not only the name of the pool is Bethesda, but its location near the Sheep Gate and the fact that it has five porticos with rushing water. Next, in the 1980s, in Yavak, Turkey, which is ancient Antioch of Pisidia, 
there was discovered there an inscription bearing the name Sergius Paulus. Now, you may remember that in Acts chapter 13, Paul preached on the island of Cyprus to a proconsul by that very same name. So these are just little breadcrumbs. We find physical remains that point to the historicity of Scripture and the trustworthiness, especially of the New Testament. Another one is in 1985, near Gynasar in Galilee, they found an ancient fishing boat. This was just so fascinating. You could look this up online. Well, you could look any of this up online. And what happened there is there was a drought and the Sea of Galilee receded and people saw this object sticking out of the water and it was a fishing boat from the first century. And so they painstakingly restored it and they now have it in a museum in the kibbutz in Gev and you can go see it today. Also, in the year 2005, archaeologists discovered the Pool of Siloam, which is mentioned in John chapter 9 in the healing of the blind man. Once again, people were saying that this never existed, this was made up by John, and yet, sure enough, the archaeologists ended up finding it later on. So these are just some of the really significant historical objective criteria that we have pointing us in the direction of trustworthiness for the New Testament. I mean, it's not going to get you all the way there to a doctrine of inspiration. Obviously, there's going to have to be, at some point, a step of faith to get from the point of saying, wow, this is, this is a really historically plausible collection of documents, and there's a lot of factual accuracy here, to the point of saying, I recognize the hand of God in the New Testament. I accept the inspiration of these scriptures. And so that step to get from this is reliable to this is something I want to live by, that requires faith. And I think we have excellent reasons, whether we're talking about archaeology or prophecy, whether messianic or otherwise, or the unflattering honesty or changed lives or miraculous preservation, whatever, these are all arrows pointing in a direction that God is behind this book. And so I commend to you the scriptures. I commend to you the Old Testament and the New Testament. And unlike so many other books that we give credence to, unlike so many other great works of literature that we take for granted, we have in the Bible just incredibly good reasons to accept the authority of Scripture and to accept the doctrine of inspiration through the Holy Spirit on these various men who wrote these books. In addition to all that I've already said, I want to add one last piece of evidence, and that is that in my own life, having lived by the principles in particular of the New Testament, the teachings of Jesus and the rest of the New Testament scriptures as a New Covenant Christian, having lived by this standard for nearly 16, 17, 18 years now, I can wholeheartedly affirm that there is a practical aspect to the book as well, that when you live by it, it works. Relationships work better when you learn to love as Jesus taught us how to love. And you do better in your workplace if you work heartily as unto the Lord. And there's incredible wisdom 
in the Old Testament and also in the New Testament for how to live and how to balance your life and how to treat people and how to parent your children and how to handle marriage. By the grace of God, I have a good marriage of 13 years, largely because I put into practice what the New Testament teaches in Ephesians chapter 5. And so, in addition to all these other eight reasons, I want to enthusiastically recommend the New Testament to you on the basis of my own personal testimony, that it has changed my life, and it helps me to live on a daily, weekly, monthly basis, incorporating these teachings into my life. So we'll see you again next week where we'll talk about the problem of evil and starting a series of overcoming objections. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard here, why not give Restitutio a five-star rating in iTunes or Stitcher? Doing so will help others find this podcast and inspire them to love God, follow Christ, and seek truth wherever it leads. Thanks for listening, and check us out online at restitutio.org, where you can find an archive of all the podcasts, as well as a bunch of articles and links to other resources. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.